Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your producer and co-host. So happy to have you here with us today, folks. We've got a fascinating guest today. It's a little bit of a pivot for us, but it's really interesting and it's going to be helpful to all of you who are out there. I hope you get his book. Let me start by uh, introducing Peter Atwater. He is a behavioral economics pioneer, internationally sought after consultant and professor of confidence driven decision making. That's what his book is about. And that's what we're talking about today. Peter is known for coining K-shaped recovery, a term that has been adopted by multiple heads of state and countless global policymakers. Peter is a frequently quoted go-to analyst on social mood and the economy. Listen to this. He teaches confidence-driven decision-making at William & Mary and to honor students at the University of Delaware. When he's not in the classroom, you can find him speaking on stage on Bloomberg Television and in the Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. Today, from his book, we go over the Confidence Quadrant Framework. We talk about stress center, comfort zone, the passenger seat, and the launch pad. This is a tool that you can use not only for personal development and to help you not only understand yourself better, but to understand those around you better, to understand your customers better, to forecast your customers' needs. This is a rich conversation. You're going to want to get this book, The Confidence Map. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. We got to get to Peter now. Without any further ado, here is the host with the most, Ian Cron. Hello, Typology Tribe. Again, it's Ian Morgan Cron, your host on the podcast where we explore the mystery of the human personality and the human adventure. And today, of course, joined by my friend, Anthony Skinner, my producer, my confrere, my pal of many years, Anthony. As always, it's so good to see you, friend. Ian, great to see you. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. It, I had a very, here in Mexico, a Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very happy. How is uh, the project going, the manuscript? Tell us where it is. Well, book five, my brother, and I am done Woo-hoo! with the first draft. Wow. The first draft is across the finish line. <laughs> That's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, you know, I, I came to San Miguel uh, excited to hunker down and focus on the work. And by gosh, it has been a great experience. Writing this book has been a joy. And I hope when people read it that they'll hear the joy in the writing. Um, I just had such a blast with it. It moved a lot faster than you'd planned too, right? Oh, I mean, the book uh, from start to finish was five or six months of just plowing it down. 55, 60,000 words in five (laughs) months. Not that I'm counting. San Miguel is the new secret weapon now, so... Well, did you know that uh, just a mile from my home, actually, uh, not even a mile, maybe a quarter of a mile from my home, there is a bar that is on the town square in front of the cathedral mm-hmm. where Jack Kerouac and Ken Kesey used to sit along with the, whose name, I now the guy, I can't remember his name. Yeah, he was the founder, really, of the beat movement, uh, sat and drank uh, in the 60s, the 50s wow. and the 60s. Mary Oliver came really? spend extended periods of time here in San Miguel. So I feel like I have the fair winds of great authors at yeah, my back. Love that. Uh, far greater than I. <laughs> authors far greater than I, but but you know, still it, it's it's been a just a kind of like a rich happy season 
for Annie and I. So I'm, I'm very grateful. And I'm very grateful for our guests today because we're going to be diving into a subject that I think is very, very important uh, for all of us. One that I'm excited to explore, if you will. You've already introduced our, our, our guest at the front end, Peter mm-hmm. Atwater. Peter, welcome to Typology. Thanks so much, Ian and Anthony. Nice to meet you both. Yes, great to Nice to you. meet you. So you've got this incredible new book. It's entitled The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. It's an intriguing title. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I spend my days uh, researching the interplay between how we feel and what we do and what we want mm. and the stories we tell. And my students and friends and colleagues encouraged me to put it into a book. And so this book really tries to help people under, better understand what confidence is, and more importantly, to understand why we do what we do over and over and over, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But um, this, is, this is a book that's all about feelings, um, which is something that somebody, I'm an economist, um, that's not our normal uh, bread and butter. Mm. This is so uh, pertinent to our audience because normally, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the human personality and unconscious drives, those things that govern our lives from the shadows. Yes. And of course, you know, for us, it's not so important in our work what people do, but why they do it. Right. That it's, that's to me is the magic sauce, right? What is interesting? Why is epiphanic, right? It, it, it is just, Tremendous. And it sounds like that's what you do. Yeah. And the why to me is all related to our feelings of certainty and control. Mm. Because when I boil down what confidence is, it's knowing what's coming and feeling like we are prepared for it. You, you could think of it as being behind the wheel. I can see the road ahead of me. I know what's coming. But Equally important, I know how to drive the car. Mm-hmm. And so I feel rehearsed, equipped, prepared, schooled, ready to go. And those two together have an incredible impact on mm. all sorts of different elements of our behavior. Okay, so I like to uh, sometimes put the via positiva next to the via negativa. Now we know we're talking about confidence. <laughs> By for purposes of clarity, what is its opposite? So the opposite, and we never think of it this way, is vulnerability. When I am vulnerable, things feel uncertain, and I feel powerless. And a lot of there's been a lot of work in the area of vulnerability, and and I think of invulnerability as involving an involuntary feeling that mm. we, we don't choose to be vulnerable. You know, it, it, vulnerability is something that happens to us mm. and those feelings happen to us. And those feelings are so important and, and today particularly so ever present in the choices that I see individuals and organizations making in response to those feelings of powerlessness and uncertainty. Okay, well, now you're just dragging me down a lane I have to talk to you about because it's it's inescapable, right? It seems to me that in our socio-political landscape, 
that there is a lust for certitude. And this lust for certitude presents itself in tribalism. It, it presents itself in the delusion that there is safety in numbers, for example. Um, and this, this lust for um, almost a psychic ability to read the future uh, as if it's knowable, yeah. which, of course, is not, not possible. So it speaks into this book speaks into this dilemma that we find ourselves at the current cultural moment. Yeah, and and when we're powerless, when we're uncertain, you know, one of the things we forget is that um, our easiest response isn't fight or flight; it's follow. Mm. And so mm, we will naturally yeah. fall in line behind those who profess to know where to go. That, that that claim to have all the answers. And, you know, if you, you could think about this, you know, you have a pipe burst. You'll respond to anybody who res- who answers the phone and says, yeah, I'll be there. And, and we're kind of the same way. We don't check credentials. We don't think about, is this person qualified? We're like, great, you, you get me, you understand my problem. I'm, I'm right there with you. And we need to be much more careful in who we follow in those moments. Yes. Because we're prone to follow the wrong people. Mm. You know, the, when we feel powerless and uncertain, that's the praying ground for predators, cult leaders, authoritarian figures. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a who's who of who's bad. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This is a study in, in Germany, 1929 to 1945. This is a study in, uh, I think, in our current context, of course, where it's not unusual to hear uh, a political figure say something like, I am the only person who can keep you safe. Yeah. And of course, that, and, and then, you know, the kerosene of media and social media that uh, seem to be in, well, I'm sure it's not unconscious, but uh, calculated in its ability to stoke fear, present a certain answer, which will have, in the end, a collapsing, cratering effect uh, on us all, I suspect. Does history bear that out? Yeah, so... so- these sorts of leaders love to put people in what I call the passenger seat, where they mm. have certainty, but they have no control. Oh, wow. And, you know, you could think about it on an airplane. You have certainty, but no control. You know, a maximum security prison is sort of the, the quintessential definition of certainty and powerlessness. And what we should be looking for and, and those we should be following are those that are interested in empowering us. Mm. who want to coach us, help us to gain more control amid uncertainty. And that's that's something, if you think about the hero's journey and mythology, that's Mm -hmm. all about gaining control amid uncertainty. And I think that culturally we're being led i think a bit astray that that you know don't do that you know follow me it's like no we should be listening to i think of noble leaders those who are trying to mentor and coach and foster a sense of control in others when that kind of leader comes to mind and whether i know you work a great deal in the corporate sphere but but in the public arena more public arena can you think of someone who was just the icon of that kind of leadership oh i i you have to go back you have to go back to 
an, an FDR. Mm. You know, you you can even hear it in uh, in some of what Kennedy was talking about. You know, what what you can do for the country. You know, I think of the. The, the spirit of leadership behind things like the the Apollo missions, you know, where where it was really about empowering others to accomplish greatness. You can see it in a lot of the the mentors in a lot of a lot of sports environments where you, where you've you you have coaches who have really set their mark in building you know successful team after successful team. So you have, you mentioned the passenger seat, but you talk in the book about this confidence quadrant as a, as a framework, and I'm dying to know more about it. Yeah. So uh, as I said, confidence is made up of certainty and control. And, and the wonderful aspect of that is that now enables me to create a pretty simple two by two box chart where I'm putting together, you know, four boxes that are different mixes of certainty and control low and high. So what are they? The upper right-hand box is where I have high certainty, high control. We love that box. In fact, I call it the comfort zone because anytime we feel like we're in the zone, we're really in an environment where we feel we have certainty and control. Time moves quickly. We're nice to each other. We're nice to ourselves. There's a whole bunch of characteristics that go along with that and not Surprisingly, when we talk about getting out of our comfort zone, what it really is, is introducing uncertainty. It's losing control and sometimes both of them together. And when we lose both of them together, that's the lower left-hand box. And I call that the stress center because Hmm. anytime we lack certainty and control, we're anxious. And we have lots of things that go with it. It's We're not nice to ourselves and others. Time passes very slowly. Um, if you've experienced a traumatic event, every traumatic event, you know, name the cause, is something that puts us in the very lower left-hand corner where mm-hmm. we feel extremely powerless with extreme uncertainty, whether it's a medical diagnosis, being mugged, you know, being in an accident, they all end up putting us in the same place, even though the the causes are different. The passenger seat is the lower right-hand box. We have certainty, but no control. And that's a, that's a box that's, that's fascinating because if, mm-hmm. again, if you've been on an airplane, you can watch as mood goes from feeling very calm to feeling chaotic in a flash. And, and so it's a, it's a box that's a hybrid and we spend a lot of time in the in the passenger seat in life you know d- depending on who you work for, for or what's happening you know people telling us what to do often makes us feel like that's where we are hmm. last box is the upper left hand box this is what i call the launch pad we have control but we have no certainty so think of it as a rock climber halfway up the cliff they don't know yet how that's going to end. Am I going to end up back in the comfort zone or am I going to end up down in the stress center? And what's so interesting is that's the box where we make all of our financial decisions, whether I'm investing, borrowing, lending. I am making a decision today where the outcome is unknown. And that's going to leave me to make decisions there based on the outcome I imagine. 
Hmm. And that box is all about our imagination. And I got, I got yelled at by a psychologist at one point. I was talking about forecasting the future and, and what happens in the future. And he said, Peter, 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 anytime we're talking about the future, we're imagining. The future is, is inherently unknown. And I, I love that because it conjures up, you know, we're creating these cartoon images in our heads and we need to sort of treat them that way. And anytime we are wildly certain of the outcome, good or bad, we need to remember that we're imagining that and mm. that it's probably not likely to be as accurate as we expect it to be. Yes, and I think what you're talking about there is these narratives or movies that we launch that actually probably are largely launched to give us a sense of safety as if we know the future, right? Yeah, and that those stories are always reflexive in that our feelings, our stories, and our actions always exist in equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And so our stories are a reflection of how I feel. Mm -hmm. uh, in my book, I include Google searches from the middle of the night because we have a natural cycle of confidence. Our low point in confidence is typically between two and three o'clock in the morning. Why do I know that? Because our searches for anxiety spike at that point. Mm -hmm. But what else spikes are our searches for, am I ugly? Am I fat? Am I stupid? And so we say horrible things to ourselves and unfortunately to others when our confidence is low. And so we need to keep that in mind, not to succumb to the siren song of our own stories because they're reflective of how I feel. Hey, everybody, if you've been listening to Typology very long, you know that I am a huge believer in the intensive counseling programs at Restoring the Soul in Denver, Colorado. So I am super excited to tell you that now through the end of 2023, Restoring the Soul is offering special discounts to Typology listeners. So if you are at a place in your life where you are really wanting to press into those challenging personal or relational issues that keep you from the Life you want to be living. Listen to me. If you are in a season where personal or relational brokenness is weighing you down, now is the perfect time to contact Restoring the Soul. My longtime friend, and I'm talking 35 years, friends, Michael Cusick and his team of world-class therapists have created an intensive counseling process where you don't have to wait months or even years to find the personal or relational healing you need. Instead, you meet with them in half-day blocks over one or two weeks so you can get unstuck from the place you are to where you want to be. Now, Anthony, you have done one of these intensives with Michael Cusick and Restoring the Soul, right? Oh, man, I have. I love Michael. I got to be with him for a week. For me, he is like a counselor, meets spiritual director, and I would say he has razor-sharp perception, and he uncovered some things for me that were life-changing. Mm, I love that. So tell people about this incredible offer. Yeah, this is great. So right now, there's a special offer for Typology listeners only. Restoring the Soul is offering $1,000 off any counseling intensive that is booked before the end of the year and $2,000 off the regular price if you book and attend a counseling intensive in 2023. No. Yes. All right, so that's $1,000 off any intensive that's 
booked before the end of the year, mm-hmm. and 2,000 if you attend one of their programs in 2023. Yes, amazing. That's a huge break. That is a huge, huge break. So listen, friends, take advantage of this amazing opportunity by contacting Restoring the Soul at www.RestoringTheSoul.com. That's www.RestoringTheSoul.com. So I, I love this because I've very, been very influenced by narrative therapy and this idea that we become the stories that we, that we tell ourselves. And the, the ability to step back and observe our stories dispassionately and to just be curious and to recognize it's just a story. Yeah. That's all this is. It's just a story. Opens up the aperture to so many more available opportunities and ways of moving in the world. And I, it's sometimes when you tell people this, they look at you like you invented fire. Like, you know, it's just a story. That's all this is. And, it, and it's a story that reflects how you feel. Mm-hmm. And so if you can just step back and look at your story, particularly when they're pessimistic and, and mean, and realize that, oh, that's because I don't have confidence. And then there's the second step you can take and say, okay, what is one thing I can do to feel more in control? What's one thing I can do to feel that things ahead are more certain. And those are really actionable. I think that to the extent that you can stop and find a way to gain a greater sense of control, you start to see that your story changes and you realize that the story you had was in fact a reflection of how you felt more than truth. I think, wow. I think we, we get caught up in these truthy stories. They feel great. They feel like they're absolute fact. But no, no, no. They're just a mirror. It's, it's, it's our head holding a, a, a reflector into how we feel. Yes, it's interesting. We have a, I have a mantra that I've used with, with people before, and it's, it's actually not original to me, but to, to James Hillman. And Hillman, Hillman says essentially something like this. He says, what happens to you in childhood is not nearly as important as what you think happened to you in childhood, right? In other words, the story you tell yourself about what happened is what's more important. And of course, the story is in, invariably distorted and untrue. And so, so much of my work in the past when I, when I had a practice was getting people to rewrite the narrative, right? And that they have agency to do so, right? And that gives a sense of control and confidence, I would imagine. Yeah, one of the hardest sentences that I wrote in the book dealt with the passenger seat. Again, this mm-hmm. environment where we have certainty but no control. And that was that we can blame others for putting us there, but it is our choice to remain. Mm-hmm. And we often empower these stories in our heads in ways that puts them in control. You know, we, you know, we can think about the passenger seat, not just being controlled by others, but by being controlled by the stories we are telling ourselves or that others have told us that we can't let go of. 
Mm. You know, mom always said this or dad yes. always said that. And, and, and so those stories put us in the passenger seat. And I think it's then our responsibility to realize that and, and appreciate that it's our choice to stay there. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to get out. You know, one of the one of the challenges with being in the passenger seat is you're there because you don't feel a sense of control. And chances are people have reinforced that sense of powerlessness over and over and over. And so the idea that you're going to trade an environment of certainty but no control for an environment of control but no certainty is terrifying to us. You know, it's, it's taking this huge leap. And it, I see this frequently, you know, if you think about the world of sexual predators, it often takes a group to, to jump together. And I think we forget that, you know, there are, there are things we can do to prepare to leave the passenger seat that will improve our odds of success when we do make that leap. Wow. I'm talking to our new friend, Peter Atwater, author of The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. And the conversation, I have to say to this point, is rich, fair, Anthony. Yes. This, is, this is stuff that's so important, uh, Peter, because, again, we work in the, the realm of person, human personality, right? Which we, we might define very simply as how people habitually and predictably show up for life. Right. It's, it's the ways that we, again, habitually act, think, and feel that over, usually over a long period of time. And what we believe is that the more we can uh, uncover the drivers, what's going on under the surface. And of course, that involves shadow work. It involves looking at the unconscious. And, and it, well, that's actually kind of a mutually exclusive way of thinking of it. But, uh, uh, but, but really diving deeper so that we're not living on autopilot all the time, you know, like just robotically, mechanically, autonomically, just kind of moving through the world, banging, usually banging guardrail to guardrail through other people's lives as we do it, right? So my question for you is, one that I'm sure people are asking, and in particular, we, we work with this thing called the Enneagram, and, and I would say there's a type called Enneagram 6, the loyalist, and they are motivated by fear and a need for certainty. They are drawn to authoritarian leaders, but at the same time suspicious at the same time of the same authoritarian leader. Uh, so there's a lot of ambivalence and uh, inside the, the mind and the heart of the, of the six. And I know that some of them are already asking the question, okay, well, this is great. Well, how do I get confidence? Like, what, how does one get it? So I would say my interest for individuals is not to obsess about getting confidence, mm -hmm. but becoming resilient. Okay. And, and what I mean by that is every year with my freshmen, I ask them to map on the quadrant to identify a dozen or so major events from their senior year of high school. And th so they start to put pinpoints in the four different boxes. And what they start to discover is that senior year of high school moves them around. 
you know, on prom night, they're in the comfort zone, unless their date's a dud, in which case they're in the stress center. But what they start to see is real life moves us from the passenger seat to the launch pad, to the stress center, the comfort zone, back to the launch pad. See, that real life keeps us in motion. Mm. And there are things we can do to improve our sense of control in terms of gaining experiences and being willing to do the, the hard work to prepare and to become better skilled, but to also appreciate that you've been in the stress center before, Ian. You've been in the passenger seat before. You've been mm-hmm. in the launch pad before. And you've successfully navigated your time there and you've moved from there. And so you have skills that you don't appreciate that have enabled you to continue to navigate life moving from box to box to box. And yeah, if I'm in the stress center, there are things that you can do to gain certainty and control. You know, finding finding coaches and mentors and others who are in similar positions are hugely valuable. One of the one of the fastest ways to gain confidence is to go volunteer. Service for others with others provides a huge adrenaline adrenaline boost in terms mm. of your feelings of certainty and control in life. You realize that you have skills that are valuable to others. You know, doing good for others is a is a fascinating way to rebuild your confidence. You know, if you don't think you have time for it because you're all stressed out, make the time to do that because you'll you 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 end up telling yourself better stories about yourself. You you know, look at what I've done today and the difference I've made in somebody else's life. Mm. You know, it's so ironic that you you raised this because Anthony, when I was in Nashville uh, two weeks ago, I had dinner with our friend Mary Gaucher mm-hmm. and uh, uh, two other songwriters and. You know, they're nervous about the next election, and, and um, they were saying, well, look, no matter what happens, well, if, if the worst happens, according to them, I'm not going to get into the, what, what their political leanings are, but we need to just start getting out in the community and start volunteering. And Mary was talking about working with this homeless shelter for dogs that Emmy Lou uh, uh, Harris put together, and... Um, you know, just that we, we need to, to, you don't want to stay home and just sort of, I guess, dwell in the story of your own powerlessness and the sky is falling, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, let's go be at the hospice and let's go work with the dogs and let's go, you know, rescue. And, and I think Peter, without their knowing it, what they were saying was in order to gain a sense of control and sure footing, let's get off our asses and go work with these vulnerable populations in order to feel I guess you might say confident in the world, right? Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to call Mary and tell her that Peter Atwater said <laughs> she's on to something. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think societally we've strayed from that. Mm. Um, you know, if I think about my parents and my grandparents' service, you know, particularly community service, was part of their being. Mm-hmm. And as a result you knew people and interacted with people who were very different from you. 
left, right, up and down the political and socioeconomic scale. And that that interaction, that shared purpose created familiarity mm-hmm. and created a sense of community. And, and community, you know, when we lack confidence, things that are familiar are so important to us. And familiar in, in as in family, as in that element of, of understanding and, you know, what, what family gives you, that sense of familiarity is, I know that. I, you know, there's no question that I understand the certainty of these people. And so that's a huge foundation for us when we're feeling powerless. You know, one of the things we see is our, our social networks shrink dramatically when we lack confidence to those we trust most. Mm. So often we, we talk with what we call Enneagram sixes and nines, and both of them struggle with what you just call ambivalence, right? And, and, and where that reveals itself is in the domain of decision-making. Now, how often do we hear people say something like, boy, I wish I had more confidence in my decision-making? And I know you talk about decision-making in, in the book. You have, um, I guess, this, uh, you know, this me-here-now frame, if you will. I, and I know that people all across the personality spectrums wrestle in different ways. Some are very confident, overconfident in their decision-making, too fast, too big. Others, too timid, too meek. Talk to us about decision-making and confidence and, and what role that plays in the book. Sure. So when our confidence is low... Our decisions tend to be me here now, meaning they're focused on me, not you. They're focused on here, not there. They're focused on now, not the future. You can Mm. think about this. If I'm about to go down a roller coaster, the only thing I care about is me here now. I don't care about anybody else because my survival is at stake. And that's that's the nature of our survival instinct is we prioritize everything to a very small world. If focus, mm. focus is the creation of that me here now need in order for us to cope with extraordinary uncertainty and powerlessness. And so we need to think about our decisions. Am I being me here now to my own peril? Because I won't be making them giving thought to how it might impact others. Mm-hmm. I may be giving, making decisions that don't give enough value to what the consequences are in the future. And so if you can step back, you can see how your choices are a reflection of how you feel. And, and let's be honest, we have a whole economy today that is geared to satisfying our me here now preferences from streaming media to all of our eye technology, you know, the, the Keurig cup, you know, we can't even share a pot of coffee. You know, if, if you look at the technology and the way businesses operate, they're all really geared towards delivering exactly what you want when you want it. So we need to f- sort of fight that, to think about the choices I'm making, because it's very seductive to be catered to in our me here now cocoon. But 
what am I doing to broaden my circle? And that mm. circle is in terms of my, my network of relationships, my physical outward look of the world. Am I traveling? Am I planning to travel? You know, what am I doing to, you know, ensure that my, my mindset is outward looking as opposed to inward looking and all about me here now. Mm. Boy, I, I'm enjoying this conversation. I, I, I always enjoy conver conversations with people who have not only an openness to experience, but have a wide aperture view of, of, of what's happening and why. And you're, you're embodying that for me right now, which is a delight. Where, where, where do you see us heading in the next 12 to 18 months? So I'm concerned about what I think of as our stacked vulnerabilities. Mm. So if you think about powerlessness and uncertainty, there are so many different ways that that can impact us. If I think about economically or financially, could be politically, could be socially, could be race, gender, ethnicity, my education level. And if you just think about all the things that matter to you, and then how are they stacking up? Do you feel vulnerable economically and politically and socially? Do you feel vulnerable in terms of your physical health? You know, if I, if I step back, Ian, and think about Black Lives Matter, you know, where did that come from? People are like, that just came out of nowhere. He said, no, no, no. Think about the stacked vulnerabilities in the background. You have a pandemic where everybody feels vulnerable. In many cases, they feel physically vulnerable. They feel financially vulnerable. Who else was already feeling vulnerable before the pandemic? Well, you can you can look at you know the whole issue of, of race as a as a vulnerability that that many experience routinely. And then all you need is a triggering event. I mean, George Floyd was not the first person killed. We'd seen a lot of this, but the stacked vulnerabilities were such that that was the tipping point. Hmm. And so when I think about the next 12 to 18 months, I am concerned about the growing weight of vulnerability that people are experiencing. And those weights have the potential to trigger social movements and those movements can be on the left, they can be on the right, they can be among the poor, they can be among the rich. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not you know, trying to predict who is likely to act, but I can tell you that when we see social movements, they will be a function of stacks of vulnerabilities where people have finally said, enough. Mm. I am going to take control amid uncertainty because to remain deep in the stress center is no longer tenable. 
And some of those are perceived vulnerabilities, right? Or vulnerabilities that people tell us that we have that we don't necessarily have, but it's in their interest for us to feel vulnerable. Is that is that fair? So there are those who are trying to amplify and to your point, keep us fearful. So their their job is to, to keep our vulnerabilities front and center and highly energized. And so, yes, yeah, some of them are not true. Some of them are true. And so it's 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 always when it comes to to vulnerability, it's it's always a subjective assessment. And again, this is where challenging our stories is such an important part of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, are you really as vulnerable as you feel? Mm. So, Peter, I'm going to do. I'm going to take us down. I'm going to get a little therapeutic on you here. But I'm, now I'm curious about something. All books have a even nonfiction, whether it's in business or whatever, whatever, wherever our books get placed on the shelves, right? They have a memoirish quality to them, right? They're born of an experience, right? I'm curious to know out of your own personal life, where this resonates. Like, you know, where does this interest in confidence? Is it a purely intellectual thing? Or have you had experience in your life uh, that has given birth to this, this book? So, yeah, there are a couple of experiences that frame um, my interplay with this. Um, my, my son has a life-threatening food allergy. Mm. And if you think about those who have food allergies, have aller- you know, talk about feelings of vulnerability and, mm-hmm. and stacked vulnerabilities. You, there's bullying, there's, you know, there's a lot that goes along with that. And then when my daughter was a college senior, she had a major medical event that was life-changing. And I include her, a map of her experience. And so what I started to gain was a much greater sense of what it meant to feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think this, the book that I wrote, while, you know, it's, it's, it's about confidence when I think about the choices we make, it's it's the vulnerability element that is such a critical part of um, our preferences, decisions, and actions. It's it's not that we're ever overconfident; it's that we're invulnerable. Hmm. And if I think about, it's not that we lack confidence; it's that we're intensely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And and lacking confidence, you would say, so what? It doesn't really explain the highly impulsive and highly emotional things we do when confidence is low. But if I learn from you that you're highly vulnerable, feel highly vulnerable and powerless and uncertain, now I can understand why your behavior is so impulsive and emotional. Mm. Of course it is. Anthony, this is big implications when I think about marriage and about parenting, um, but also just about our way of being in the world. It's such a a fraught time that if we can understand each other's vulnerabilities and, and unlike the predators out there who exploit them, if, if, if we can be people who carry with us this, this uh, friend of mine used to say that who was a doctor and of course doctors in emergency rooms are around vulnerable people at their most vulnerable all day long. Right. And um, his name is Keith Hagan. And Keith used to say to me that he taught residents that the first thing they had to learn was the soft gaze, just the soft gaze. 
that when he walked into a room, that his eyes softened as he looked at people in recognition of their vulnerability and in, and in recognition of their beauty and their, their vulnerability and to reassure them that they would get through it together. And I, I'm not sure we could have a better piece of advice. I mean, if you want to just take one granular piece of advice home today, maybe, maybe it is that we all need to adopt the, the soft gaze in a, in a world of, uh, that is loaded, where people feel so many stacked vulnerabilities in, in your uh, nomenclature, Peter. It's, it's so important for us to, I mean, this book is about adopting, I mean, for me personally, right? Like as I'm listening to you, I'm listening as through the ears of a, you know, of a therapist. And um, what I'm hearing is a, a, a call to be in the world with a new awareness of these things and to approach people with that tender gaze. Yeah, I mean, I, when I'm dealing with um, business leaders, mm. one of the first things I challenge them with is, where are your employees on the map? Where are your customers? Where are you? Because you need to understand where people are in order for your messages to resonate to know how to lead them best. And, you know, we don't stop to pause to say, where is this person today? You know, in, in my book, I, you were mentioning emergency room doctors. My, one of my favorite maps is the map that an emergency room doctor drew of his day. And mm. he just drew this sharp line back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the bottom of the stress center back into the comfort zone. And, he's, and I interviewed him during COVID and he said, Peter, my job is to go from the stress center to the comfort zone over and over and over and to get my patients from the stress center to the comfort zone. And when I, when I talk to doctors and I, I talk to hospital administrators and, and the medical community a lot, and I say, you know, the difference between curing a patient and healing a patient is that healing a patient brings the restoration of certainty and control in their lives. Mm -hmm. Curing doesn't do that. And so your mission in healthcare, your mission in therapy, your mission, I think our mission, hopefully as a human species, is to help others gain a greater sense of certainty and control in whatever it is they're doing where we're interacting with them. Mm. Wow, everybody, I want to remind you, we're speaking with Peter Atwater, author of the new incredible book, The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity. Peter, this is, I mean, what an amazing conversation. I could go on forever on this, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it there and ask you to tell people, I mean, obviously Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever great books are sold, they can get a copy of your book. I'm assuming it's peteratwater.com. Am I right? It is peteratwater.com. And, and I would say to your, your listeners, don't be intimidated that you're going to find this book in the business section because that's where they've, that's where they've put it. And there's a lot of – the business stuff is – they're metaphors. They're stories. It's, my kids have read – you know, this, this works whether you're a teenager to you know, the CEO of a corporation. These these principles are are universal. 
I was about to say, the, the uh, most mothers I know would say that they spend most of their life navigating those two quadrants <laughs> yeah, really. the, that the emergency room doctor spoke about, you know, uh, with differing degrees of, you know, gravity, but still. Yeah, I, I had um, a policeman who, who said, you know, they told us it was a roller coaster. And then I saw your picture of the emergency room. And he's like, that's my day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we are big advocates of self-knowledge, right? Cultivating self-knowledge. And I think this book fits perfectly in that zone for our audience. And so I'm encouraging all of you to go out and get a copy of the new book, The Confidence Map, Charting a Path from Chaos to Clarity by our new friend, Peter Atwater. Peter, thanks for being on Typology. I really appreciate the conversation, Ian. Thank you so much. Very rich. And Anthony, you know how I'm going to close it out, right? Yes. Yes. Well, as always... Typology friends, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Look forward to seeing you next time.